welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm thrilled in the sixth year of our partnership with Rhodium, we have now moved, by popular demand, moved from a annual report and doing a rollout of that to a now semi-annual. So we are six months from the last time we had a report, I guess a little more, um, yeah, around six months, uh, but we're now able to bring you additional data. At a time when there's tons of heat and smoke around China, there's not much light. And what is so great about this partnership with Rhodium, with, with Tilo and Adam and, and Dan Rosen, is that it brings data and light to the US-China relationship that it's not speculation on what's happening, but actually data that tells us what's going on. And that is incredibly important um, in this time when the relationship is replete with problems. So rather than going on at length and telling you Tilo and Adam's extraordinary biography, let me just turn it over to Tilo and have him and Adam talk for 20 minutes more or less and then we will go, I'll ask some questions, and then I'll turn to audience questions. But let me turn it over to Tilo. Thank you, Steve. Uh, and thank you all for your interest in our continuous effort uh, to shed light on US-China uh, capital flows, as Steve mentioned now uh, in, uh, in year six. Uh, 2020 has been a, a rather unusual and, and volatile year for all of us. Uh, uh, and the, the global pandemic and the further deterioration of the U.S.-China relationship have certainly had a tremendous impact on investors sitting on both sides of uh, the Pacific. Uh, our last session uh, uh, took place uh, right around the most severe COVID um, outbreak in, in April-May uh, 2020, and we have already discussed some of the uh, emerging trends uh, that we were seeing at the beginning of the year. We now have a fuller body of data all the way through the first six or seven months of the year. So during today's session, uh, we'd like to describe how these uh, trends have unfolded uh, in the first half of the year uh, and also uh, discuss a bit what is in store for the remainder uh, of uh, 2020. I have my colleague Adam Lysenko with me, who is our expert on uh, venture capital and technology investment, and who will cover that part of the presentation. Uh, we also have our third co-author, uh, Cassie Gao, with us in the virtual room. Cassie is about to go on a well-deserved break and therefore isn't presenting today, but uh, she's been an indispensable part of this effort for many years. Uh, and finally, uh, we also have our senior partner and founder, uh, Dan Rosen, lurking in the background, uh, and I'm sure we'll find a way to uh, loop him into discussion later on. So let's get started. Um, Adam, if you don't mind uh, moving to the next slide. Starting with a, with a high-level overview, uh, when we previewed uh, 2020 early in the year, uh, we were understandably quite pessimistic about the outlook. And um, by and large, our, uh, our now full 1H data confirms that view. This chart here shows you uh, 
two-way flows of uh, the two types of capital that we are tracking in that effort, completed FDI transactions and uh, completed venture capital transactions between uh, China and the US. Uh, the headline investment figure uh, came down to $10.9 billion, which is the lowest level in almost a decade. The last time we've seen that kind of level of investment was in uh, all the way back in 2011, as you can see here. Um, and just looking at the, the big peak in 2016, uh, we're now at about a third or a quarter even of what we've seen during that peak in 2016, 2017. If you look at the decomposition of, of, of that chart, uh, you can also immediately see that uh, the drop that uh, we saw in the first of the year was mostly driven by a big decline uh, in the blue field in US FDI uh, into China. While Chinese investment in the US has remained relatively stable, or if you look at the orange uh, FDI line here, even increased a bit. Um, so um, on a high level, we've seen uh, a big decline and it was mostly driven uh, by a decline in American investment into China. So let's dive into each of these uh, flows a bit more in detail and I'm gonna uh, take the lead uh, on direct investment, which as a reminder, um, FDI uh, are investments that are longer term in nature and entail significant ownership interests. So traditionally that includes acquisitions of 10% or more um, or a greenfield project from scratch. So factories, office buildings and the likes. So looking at um, this chart here, uh, and we've described and discussed this in length before, uh, Chinese FDI into the US has been on a steady uh, decline for the past four years already. Uh, we went from a peak of about 20, 25 billion per six month period during 2016, 2017, to right about 5 billion per six month period uh, over the last uh, three or four years. Uh, in the second half of 2019, uh, we've reached a, a low point of uh, uh, close to $2 billion. And looking at the past six months, first half of 2020, we are seeing a bit of a rebound, as you can see. So our headline figure is 4.7 billion. However, um, the majority of that invest can be attributed to just one singular um, minority acquisition, 10 cents, 3.4 billion purchase of a, of a small stake uh, in uh, Universal Music Group, which is right at the border between uh, passive portfolio investment and FDI. So if you take out that one transaction, we barely get to a billion dollars in new investment uh, by Chinese companies here uh, in the US. Um, two uh, bigger takeaways. Uh, so at the beginning of the year, there were some concerns that COVID-19 uh, and the economic fallout that the pandemic will bring would lead to uh, uh, an aggressive Chinese asset buying spree uh, in the US. Uh, and that concern has clearly voiced by, by many US politicians at the beginning of the year uh, that so far has clearly not materialized. We're not out of the crisis yet, so uh, we might still some of that happening. But so far, we're not seeing uh, a major surge uh, in, in distressed asset buying. Uh, the other thing that's perhaps a bit surprising to many is that we're, despite um, tariffs and, and trade wars, we're not really seeing a, a major increase of Chinese greenfield FDI resulting from, from these additional trade barriers. It continues to trickle in, uh, but um, we're certainly uh, well below the peak of Chinese greenfield FDI looking back the past couple of years. And so far, we're not seeing a repetition of what happened with, uh, with Japanese uh, companies in the 1980s, 90s, that they would invest massive amounts of money in, in localizing uh, uh, advanced manufacturing uh, in the United States. Um, 
Adam, next slide, please. So digging a little deeper, at just what's, what's the reason for this hiatus? And, and really, I think the, the most important uh, dimension we, we still need to consider is China's domestic environment. Uh, China's economy was first hit by COVID uh, all the way in, in, in January 2020. Um, so uh, there were physical barriers imposed on, on uh, investment and deal making. And then the response to the crisis in China uh, was not the same as in, in the US and other OECD markets and monetary and fiscal expansion have remained quite subdued. So uh, the, the liquidity situation remains uh, fairly, uh, um, uh, fairly modest and uh, Beijing has kept those capital controls uh, that have led to that initial decline uh, firmly in place. So looking at the global picture, China's global outbound investment, this is a proxy, uh, so it shows newly announced Chinese M&A, outbound M&A transactions. You see this massive drop uh, in January, right, from about, you know, about 80 to 100 transactions per month uh, in, in, in global outbound M&A to only about you know, 20 or 30 uh, uh, after January 2020. Uh, and the value is shrinking even more. So this is a global phenomenon. Chinese companies are staying home, are consolidating the balance sheets, are taking a wait and see approach. And um, the US uh, uh, is, is really a reflection of that. At the same time, if we move to the next slide, Adam, uh, we certainly do have to, uh, to look at, uh, at US policy and policies, politics as well. Uh, and uh, uh, looking at the past six to 12 months, uh, there were a number of new um, policies in Washington that have put greater scrutiny on Chinese investment and Chinese companies operating in the US market. Um, of course, starting with M&A uh, uh, itself, uh, uh, the, the FIRMA legislation has led to greater scrutiny on, uh, on uh, Chinese acquisitions and it has also led to greater enforcement of, uh, of, uh, of FIRMA rules, uh, which are now uh, at the core of uh, some of the asset divestitures that we're seeing, and we're going to get to that in just a minute. So, so CFIUS enforcement is, is one of those variables. Second one is uh, uh, an expanding toolkit that includes certain policies to exclude Chinese companies from specific markets in the U.S. Obviously, uh, Huawei is, is the prime example. Uh, we, ha we had an executive order uh, uh, on, on, on WeChat and Chinese uh, uh, software companies. Uh, an executive order on ICT supply chain security. So uh, quite a, an expanding toolbox to specifically uh, exclude Chinese companies and Chinese providers from certain markets uh, in the US. Sanctions is another layer of that. Uh, we had a, a bunch of uh, 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 companies put on an expanded list uh, for uh, sanctions related to Hong Kong, South China Sea, uh, the Xinjiang human rights situation and other um, uh, areas. And that is certainly impacting um, these companies uh, and, and their subsidiaries. And then last but not least, overall, if you look at uh, where US policy has been going, um, uh, there were quite a few steps that overall complicate the uh, operational environment for Chinese companies in the US, especially for uh, innovation uh, um, focused companies. Uh, we had tighter visa restrictions for uh, PRC passport holders and, 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 and researchers. Uh, we have export controls that are going to prevent uh, certain uh, Chinese companies from developing technology in the U.S. and then exporting it back to China or third markets. And so, uh, in, in sum, that expanding toolbox uh, is, is, is certainly weighing on uh, Chinese investment on top of those domestic restrictions that we see firmly in place. Um, and then finally, next slide, Adam, please. 
one one really important dimension um, that is probably on everybody's mind, uh, given given the higher profile uh, TikTok situation, is that uh, the the escalating uh, U.S.-China tensions are also uh, uh, pressuring firms uh, into unraveling existing investments. So this chart here is just a, a, a little timeline that we pulled together that shows uh, China's Chinese divestitures of U.S. assets, and uh, we tried to uh, visually uh, mark the ones that are related to U.S. policy in red and all the others in, in blue. And you know, as you can see, you know, quite, a, quite a few divestitures, but but, uh, um, but not really a huge amount uh, before uh, 2015, 2016. Then in 2017, 2018, the big unwinding of the Anbangs, the, the HNAs of the world, uh, uh, really driven by uh, Beijing's intervention. And now increasingly, if you look at 2019, 2020, you see more of these red dots uh, popping up. And of course, the scale has become a lot larger too, uh, that, um, uh, that CFIUS and, and, and the US administration is taking a more proactive uh, step and is, is using uh, some of the open flanks that these companies have by not filing with CFIUS before to unwind uh, some of these transactions retroactively. So in some, not, not only do we see new investment slowing down, but we continue to see an erosion of China's asset base uh, in the US. Next slide, please. So switching to the other direction, and if you have attended uh, more than one of those events before, um, um, this is always the one slide where I would say, well, you know, US FDI into China, this is, this is the one uh, stable and reliable and predictable uh, measure that we have. If you look, 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 look back the past couple of years, you know, we've, we've, there were some fluctuations, but we've always been between that seven, seven to uh, eight billion figure per six months period. Um, in the first half of 2020, that has changed and we witnessed quite a, a, a big drop. Completed investments by US companies uh, declined to only about 4.1 billion, which compared to the same period last year um, is down about 30% uh, from, from that previous uh, uh, quarter, uh, first quarter 2019. Um, the, 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 the situation is, is quite um, difficult to assess, but on a, on a very high level, uh, um, we do see um, uh, that there is a certain floor uh, for, for U.S. Uh, investment into China because a lot of U.S. companies are working on multi-year big capex expansions and projects uh, in China. So building theme parks, building refineries, building big production facilities to serve the domestic market. So these investments still continue and they're fairly stable. Um, at the same time, uh, we see a, a pretty rapid slowdown of new investment. So Companies continue their existing investments and projects, but they're holding off on new investments, which is uh, intuitive if you look at uh, the, the economic shock from COVID uh, and uh, the, um, uh, the the planning uncertainty that uh, multinationals are facing. Um, Adam, just really quick on the uh, industry distribution, um, this sort of stance is reflected um, if, if you look at the uh, industry distribution of U.S. investment into China, U.S. FDI into China in the first half. On the right-hand side, you can see that a lot of it is, uh, is uh, really focused on domestic consumer, domestic demand. Um, ag and food is the largest category. Uh, we continue to see entertainment. A lot of U.S. companies, uh, uh, Disney, uh, Universal, others building, continue to build theme parks despite COVID. 
um, and um, a, an interesting uptick in energy and basic materials investment um, as well. Um, we are also seeing, and that's important from a U.S. perspective, uh, a, a, a quite a lot of momentum in a financial uh, service industry. Uh, so uh, quite a few uh, uh, banks and financial companies are now taking steps to increase their stakes uh, in their existing joint ventures or buy it out completely. So far, um, completed stakes are still fairly small. So they went from 49% to 51%, but quite a few companies are in the process of putting more money on the table and buying out their, uh, their joint venture partners. So we are seeing uh, quite a robust pipeline, both M&A and additional um, 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 organic growth uh, by U.S. financial service providers in, in our data, but they don't show up in that completed investment perspective yet. Next slide. Um, so so is, this, is this drop that we're seeing uh, in, the, in the first half of the year, is this going to be a permanent picture or, or temporary? Um, again, I, I think the, 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 the answer really depends very heavily on, on the industry uh, and the activity that you're looking at. Um, we do feel looking at our data and taking into account some of the more anecdotal survey data that we have from the American Chamber, the U.S. Chamber, that um, folks are really cutting back on uh, manufacturing, especially export-oriented manufacturing investment, uh, but there still is a lot of appetite to further increase investment in operations to serve local demand, so made in China for China. Uh, one Big unknown and one big question certainly is Chinese policy. So, so far, looking at the big picture again, China's response to a, a more aggressive uh, U.S. policy stance has, in my view, been fairly restrained. Um, but um, there is, if relations further sour, uh, certainly the, the possibility of a more, uh, of a more uh, aggressive uh, pushback and retaliation uh, and, uh, uh, and maybe even a uh, uh, a uh, uh, reversion to a more uh, domestic focus by by Beijing, and certainly, if you, if you look at this slide here, um, we we pulled out a few examples for uh, um, how U.S. companies are exposed nowadays to the Chinese market, both in terms of uh, in total investment, so assets they've sunk into the Chinese market, but also uh, in terms of uh, uh, their exposure uh, of, of revenue and growth uh, and profit. Uh, a lot of U.S. companies are now deeply, deeply exposed or dependent um, on, on the Chinese market. So there's a big question mark how, if we move forward with this decoupling, how are we going to um, deal with situations like this? And uh, what are these companies going to do to uh, um, sustain their revenue if they cannot uh, operate in the Chinese market as they used to for the past uh, two or three decades? I'm going to stop here, look forward to continuing the conversation on FDI uh, in a bit, and I'm going to pass it on to Adam to talk a bit about uh, venture capital. Uh, thank you, Tilo, and good afternoon, everyone. I'm glad we could participate here today. Uh, as Tilo did at the outset, uh, I'm just going to just quickly define uh, what venture capital is, uh, whereas all of the trends that Tilo has addressed in the last several slides involve direct investment, which we generally construe to be uh, investment in existing or new assets with ownership uh, thresholds of at least 10%. Uh, venture capital is a little bit different. It focuses on investment in pre-IPO firms, uh, generally high-tech growth firms um, that uh, have not yet been listed on a stock exchange and may or may not uh, result in um, ownership thresholds that exceed that 10%. 
Uh, so it's a little bit of a different universe. Investment sizes tend to be smaller because these generally, with a few exceptions, are smaller firms that are still in the uh, low ramp up phase of their, uh, of their growth. Um, and measuring investment in this uh, conduit or this, uh, this uh, viaduct is a little bit more complicated because of the complex global structures that uh, venture capital uh, has come to take. Uh, so just to, uh, 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 um, just to address that in broad strokes, uh, for the data that I'm going to share in the next four slides, we're generally considering um, uh, investor location to be tied to the general partner when you have a limited partnership structure. Um, there are certainly complex questions around participation of LPs from different jurisdictions uh, and uh, uh, difficult questions that we address a little bit more in depth in the uh, dedicated report on venture capital that we published in collaboration with the National Committee under the US China Investment Project in January. So encourage anyone with questions about our methodology uh, to go and take a look at that report. Anyway, without further ado, I want to dive into the numbers a little bit. Um, uh, as with uh, FDI, uh, venture capital has seen a uh, downtrend in the last several periods. Uh, starting with Chinese venture capital in the United States, uh, we can see that uh, venture capital investment by those China-based firms in the U.S. has been falling pretty steadily since reaching a high mark in the first half of 2018. Uh, what has happened since then to make that uh, a reality? Uh, several things, just to name a few. Uh, FIRMA was passed, uh, the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act in mid-2018 which extended investment screening authority uh, to cover uh, minority venture capital transactions potentially for the first time. U.S.-China relations certainly have deteriorated over the period. Um, but then also there have been pressures in China. China's own domestic fundraising climate has tightened through a deleveraging campaign and uh, that has led to what some observers have termed a capital winter in China's own venture capital ecosystems, which has made it more difficult for um, uh, individuals and uh, new venture capital funds to raise uh, venture capital from uh, the Chinese market. Uh, although to be fair, China-based general partners are not necessarily fully reliant on uh, Chinese onshore funding. But all of, these, all of these headwinds have come about at the same time and resulted in a sustained downtrend. And as a result, uh, in the most recent period, in the first half of 2020, this uh, trend continued. We estimate that venture capital investment from China fell to just uh, about $800 million in the United States. Uh, which is the lowest level we've seen since 2014, well below the, uh, uh, the peaks um, that we're seeing in, in the most recent years. Um, there is an apparent um, uptick in transaction count, a modest uptick in the last period, uh, and that stands out, stands out as well. Uh, but one caveat there is that uh, measuring venture capital activity is often very challenging. Um, uh, information comes out with a delay, uh, if at all, in some cases. And so we've made a, an adjustment to the data we actually have to uh, uh, try and estimate the gap between what our coverage is and what actual activity was. So uh, the, the actual magnitude of the uptick is a little bit unclear. Uh, important trends to note from the first half. Um, some venture investors have slowed their U.S. investment programs. Um, some have started diverting to other markets. And others have even made the decision to divest completely of their U.S. holdings. Um, and so these different strategies certainly are each contributing to a, a slowdown in overall activity. Uh, remaining investors tend to be shifting towards smaller, less blitzy investments uh, on average, which means smaller average deal sizes, which helps account for the lower overall investment amount. Um, and again, the uptick, apparent uptick in transaction counts that I note from the most recent period here also mirrors a modest rise in total fundraising activity in the United States, both by total uh, venture funds raised and by transactions in the first half. So even if there is a little bit of an uptick here, I would interpret this not as a harbinger of uh, a future um, recovery, uh, but more of a stabilization at low levels where uh, Chinese uh, venture fundraising activity in the U.S. is, as a portion of total venture fundraising activity, has stayed fairly constant. 
talking about industry trends a little bit, um, what always stands out or has for the last several years, at least looking at Chinese venture investment in the United States is uh, the prominence of the health, pharmaceuticals and biotechnology um, segments. Five of the 10 largest Chinese VC deals in the first half targeted firms in these sectors uh, and accounted for uh, almost 50% of total transactions by count. Um, one of the reasons this might be the case is that regulatory scrutiny has so far been mostly focused on ICT and social media data related companies. Uh, and so perceived opportunities uh, may, may still be a little bit uh, stronger in this area for Chinese VC investors who so far haven't seen a concerted and massive uh, US regulatory push to try and uh, constrict access uh, to this sector. Um, Chinese venture firms also generally have an outsized interest in the health, pharmaceuticals, and biotechnology sector compared to the broader uh, US ecosystem and investors from other jurisdictions. A couple of transactions we saw on that, um, uh, in that sector included a $100 million Series C round for Q, a healthcare technology company developing a health, uh, health monitoring system, or a $143 million Series B round with funding for Incitro, which is a drug development company using machine learning. Uh, those are illustrative of the types of example of the types of investments Chinese VC firms are making. Um, of course, other top industries here include financial and business services, uh, ICT and entertainment, media and education. And a few examples include uh, targets like financial technology firm iCapital Network or AI optical chip maker Litelligence or social gaming platform Roblox. Uh, these are firms that have received Chinese backing. Uh, just taking a few minutes to look at trends in the opposite direction. Um, as with Chinese VC investment in the U.S., there has been a pretty sustained downtrend in U.S. VC investment in China since reaching peaks in 2018. Although it's notable that the peaks that U.S. VC in China reached in 2018, especially by investment value, far eclipsed the peaks that Chinese VC investment reached in the U.S. Uh, and that was mostly due to uh, large U.S. Uh, GPs participating in large uh, later stage financing. Um, for companies like Pinduoduo uh, that raised uh, multiple billions of dollars in, uh, in what in some cases were record uh, fundraising rounds. Uh, what has drawn the downtrend in the last several years? Um, even though U.S. investors generally remain interested in the opportunities offered by China's startup universe, the past two years especially have seen um, uh, big changes in China's broad venture fundraising ecosystem as investors have become much more selective in the face of um, increasing economic uncertainty in China. Uh, as um, uh, liquidity has dried up as part of a, a concerted regulatory um, uh, attempt in China to control systemic risk. And also due to growing perception that parts of China's tech ecosystem had become overheated after years of rapid growth. Uh, some niche technology areas like AI especially uh, have, have struggled to uh, attract the, the amount of capital that uh, those areas received in 2017 and 2018. So this broader slowdown in venture activity in China, which I mentioned previously is sometimes referred to as a capital winter, uh, was certainly also exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic in the first half. Um, and both domestic and foreign investors have slowed their participation in new fundraisings in China uh, since 2018. Uh, given all of that background, we estimate that U.S. investors participated in about 120 transactions and invested only about $1.3 billion in Chinese startups in the first half of 2020, uh, with a notable drop also in contributions to early stage fundraising rounds. Um, too soon to know whether or not that will be a sustained trend, but it was uh, very interesting uh, knowing period over period. Um, and then while figures for the first half of 2020 are preliminary, um, data from the first six months of the year show the lowest venture investment level since 2016. Uh, looking just a little bit at uh, trends by industry, uh, something that sticks out is that U.S. venture investment in China generally targets a broader swath, uh, or at least more evenly targets 
uh, a larger number of industries in China than Chinese VC investors uh, target in the United States. There isn't the same dominance of healthcare bio, uh, and biopharmaceutical investment in China uh, as there is for Chinese firms in the US, for example. Taking a look at some examples from the most recent half, uh, we saw investments in industries like financial and business services with companies like JD Industrial Products, which uh, provides an, an industrial products e-commerce platform, in entertainment, media, and education, which saw some of the largest transactions overall, including Yuan Fu Dao's $1 billion uh, series G fundraising round, which is an online live course educational platform, or Zoya Bang's $750 million series E round, which provides an online learning app. Uh, education and education technology is a, a very popular uh, segment uh, within China's broad startup ecosystem. We also saw notable activity in consumer products and services in companies like Yatsen Global, which provides high-end beauty and cosmetics products, or Guochuan Shihui, which is a hot pot ingredient supplier. Um, health pharmaceuticals and biotechnology also played a role, although less than uh, it did in Chinese investment in the U.S., with companies like Akiso Biopharma, which provides antibody, uh, antibody treatments, receiving funding from U.S. investors. Uh, and finally, ICT, uh, Information Communications Technologies, rounded out the last of the top five sectors for USBC investment in China, targeting companies like Eswin, which is a semiconductor designs and solutions provider. Uh, that's sort of like drinking from a fire hose, but hopefully gives some overview, uh, uh, a concise overview of, of what information can be found in our report. And uh, with that, I'm now going to uh, cede the floor back to Tilo, who's going to uh, spend a few minutes looking at the outlook for activity in both directions. Uh, thank you, Adam. And before I move on to, to discussing the outlook, um, I um, would like to uh, mention really quick uh, that we have a fabulous uh, website. Uh, for those of you who have not explored yet, Adam, if you don't mind moving to the next slide, um, uschinainvestment.org uh, uh, has a nice interactive feature where, feature where you can, first of all, find all of our um, historical reports, and you're able to um, explore both uh, the FDI and the venture capital data uh, on your own. So if you haven't visited yet, please uh, take a look, and you can also sign up for uh, a newsletter that will keep you uh, in the loop on uh, events and upcoming publications. So moving on uh, to the uh, outlook uh, for uh, the rest of the year. Um, Adam, next slide, please. Um, it is extremely uh, a tricky uh, in this volatile world to uh, uh, make make predictions about what's going to happen. But um, certainly, uh, considering all the external circumstances, the the, the outlook um, um, is not overly um, optimistic for Chinese investment in the U.S. Uh, we always kind of start with looking at the pipeline. So, what are some of the deals that have been announced that are still pending? Um, and that deal pipeline continues to be fairly low. There's one exception as a, a multi-billion dollar acquisition uh, of a U.S. insurance company, which has been pending for uh, many, many years now. So that's one deal that could maybe prop up the, the number a bit in the second half of the year. But otherwise, the pipeline is fairly empty. Uh, we continue to see uh, CFIUS, uh, uh stepping up uh, its, its enforcement. So going back at, at old transactions. So the scrutiny uh, of, of new incoming deals and, and, and old deals uh, will continue. And certainly um, um, the, the politics around US-China relations uh, will not become easier with uh, the US uh, elections coming up uh, and, uh, uh, and uh, putting some of these issues even, even more into the spotlight. 
Um, by and large, looking looking past November, um, 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 you may ask, is a is a is a Biden administration going to change the picture materially? Uh, in our view, uh, the the electoral outcome is unlikely to really change the broader trend toward a more uh, stringent enforcement of of national security um, uh, instruments. But there is certainly uh, a, a good chance that if we see uh, a, a, a democratic administration, that uh, we see a more more measured, more cautious approach to U.S.-China relations, which then in turn could reduce the, the alarmism uh, and uh, and the aggressiveness, uh, which in turn uh, will likely uh, provide an opportunity to restart investment or recovery of investment in some of the non-sensitive sectors. So I'm talking about consumer goods, I'm talking about real estate, I'm, I'm talking about anything that doesn't involve huge swaths of data. So investments in these areas still make a lot of sense and there's a, a huge room to expand. Uh, and if a, a new administration is able to take off some of that, uh, uh, that extreme uh, political risk, uh, then we may see recovery in these areas. Um, for U.S. investment uh, into China, um, I think one of the main uh, variables to watch is China's recovery, and uh, the numbers look a lot stronger than just a few months ago. Uh, so China is likely going to be the only major economy that's actually going to record uh, a positive GDP growth this year. Uh, and so um, we do believe that there's a strong incentive for U.S. companies to continue to invest uh, in China because that's where the demand is. Uh, and there's also uh, a certain uh, floor uh, for U.S. FDI into China uh, because of uh, liberalization efforts over the past uh, couple of years. So we've got a bunch of um, efforts on the way in the financial sector and the automotive sector, chemicals, which really has laid the groundwork for um, drawing in additional um, U.S. Uh, money uh, in the form of both acquisitions and wholly owned uh, greenfield facilities. Um, at the same time, as mentioned before, um, a lot of companies are taking a second look at their long-term CapEx plans for China uh, because, yes, consumption is recovering, but certainly is not at the same level as it was pre-COVID. And there are some, um, some concerns that, um, that, that, that might not actually go back to that, uh, to that same growth rate before. Uh, and then on top of that, we, we do have quite a bit of both commercial and political pressure uh, for multinationals to uh, reevaluate uh, their reliance on Chinese uh, supply chains in certain areas. And finally, as mentioned before, really a critical variable uh, for looking at two-way investment is Beijing's policy stance. Um, they, is Beijing going to double down on reform and are they going to continue to exert restraint or we now see uh, 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 internal circulation campaigns that uh, really focus on uh, on uh, uh, reducing reliance on the global economy, um, and um, certainly similar to the U.S., there is a greater focus on economic nationalism uh, within within China. So uh, those are some of the big questions that will guide the, the medium-term outlook um, beyond the acute uh, COVID pandemic. Uh, and uh, we, our entire team, will certainly continue to watch this very closely uh, and continue to provide uh, uh, independent and ob objective data to uh, help policymakers understand what is truly going on. Finally, before, before I hand it back to Steve, I just wanna um, uh, uh, end here with uh, pulling a plug for something else that we are working on. Um, while FDI and venture capital uh, investment have generally moved downwards, one curve has actually moved up uh, and that is um, 
foreign investment into uh, uh, Chinese equities and bonds. Uh, and a lot of that is, is coming from US investors. Uh, so just as, as these investors are starting to, to dip their toes into Chinese onshore um, securities, there is a lot of talk about financial decoupling and prohibiting certain US entities from investing in, in Chinese stocks and bonds. Uh, and so, so a lot of these debates are now starting to um, shape up in DC. And as previously with FDI and DC, a lot of these discussions are happening without a really good grasp on the data and the commercial dynamics. So we, as a US-China investment project, we are in the pr process of producing a primer that looks at these US-China portfolio investment dynamics. Uh, and we hope to release that piece uh, in October, November, 2020. Uh, so very much hope to invite you uh, uh, to an interesting program around that uh, and uh, shed some great light on that aspect of uh, US-China uh, capital flows uh, in the fall. I'm gonna close out here and uh, pass it back to uh, Steve to get going on the Q&A session. Thank you. The, um, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn it over to Dan, but let me, can we just go back to that slide for, for one second? Is that just US portfolio investment in China? So that, that is, that is those are, so those are, those are official Chinese figures on total foreign bond and equity holdings of onshore Chinese securities. So about a so, trillion, Probably about a trillion, trillion, a trillion to uh, uh, officially recorded in balance payments. That doesn't include uh, um, foreign holdings of uh, Chinese securities that are listed offshore, right? That doesn't include anything necessarily that is uh, in so Hong Kong or, or other things. Yeah, yeah, correct. Which is massive. Correct. Before asking my, I realize we never set aside enough time for these discussions. But uh, let me turn it over to Dan uh, to make some comments on what you have to say before I get into my questions. And I'm sure Dan's comments will certainly raise even more questions. But Dan, take it over. Thank you, Steve. I'm going to keep it uh, very brief um, because Tilo and, uh, and Adam have already put a very rich repast on the table for us to um, uh, chew on. Um, but let me just make uh, four super quick observations at an even higher level. The first, we don't have to satisfy ourselves with just ambiguity and uncertainty about something as important as the US-China economic relationship. Uh, as has just been demonstrated, it is possible uh, to grapple with this in, a, in an objective way. And it's so important to do that. Um, some people doubt that that's the case. They think it's sort of inherently needs to be a murky story um, that favors people who want it to be murky and it's not actually a necessity. Second, uh, there's tons of information in the world today. Uh, it's not just about having more numbers and more data. It's about building up the credibility to offer a judgment, a point of view in a judicious way as Tilo and Adam are doing that takes that information and makes it powerful. And I think I'm very proud of this project and the work they're doing um, because it's a paragon of that sort of even-handedness, um, which makes it valuable to, uh, to all sides. Thirdly, coming back to one of the first slides um, that we were walking through in the deck uh, on, uh, um, I believe, Chinese flows um, into the U United States. And the point was made that we actually have a little bit of an uptick, but it was all dependent on a single deal. So at the level we're at right now, where a single deal of not even grand scale can change the narrative completely 
from, oh, things are continuing down to, oh, maybe things have found a bottom, we have to imagine that that's very tempting for government officials who want to kind of influence the narrative and move the, move the story around a little bit on the front page of the papers to uh, consider the, the, the temptation to lean in with regulation to try to prevent the deal from happening or make a deal from ha uh, happen. Um, that's a very dangerous temptation, of course, if we start politicizing uh, individual transactions to get the narrative that we want to get, um, then we are, we're really getting in trouble. Um, and so we, we should all, I think, be you know, mindful of that uh, and thinking about it. And then finally, um, Kilo brought us right up to date and noted at the end there uh, the, uh, uh, the current rebound in Chinese macroeconomic activity. And he raised the question for our consideration, will that tend to put some, uh, stoke the fires a little bit and create, create some more activity uh, or at least the logic of more activity in US-China um, direct investment uh, activity, both FDI and VC. And I would just observe that the rebound we're seeing in China is a bit tenuous. <laughs> it's the result not of a sort of sustainable uh, reform uh, initiative, but actually quite the opposite, government stepping back in and, um, uh, and taking charge of economic activity during a crisis. That's not gonna get China where it needs to go in the medium term. And so we've got uh, a momentary um, kind of uh, um, surge of activity on some parts of the Chinese economy, but direct in investment transactions are for, I won't say forever, but they're for a decade. It's not, you don't go into a position by building a factory for a little while and then decide to come out again next year if an industry cools down. So very tough and tricky times. Uh, for direct investors to decide whether they should truly go along uh, or not um, in light of uh, the data we have to work with um, just here in the moment. And with that, thanks, Steve, for giving me a minute to offer a few thoughts. And uh, my, my hat's off to my colleagues, and, and also thank you to you for six years of partnership on this. I'm going to go back uh, on, uh, on blank. Okay. Well, this, it's, it's terrific. and appreciate those comments. I guess, you know, Tilo, I mean, both Tilo and Adam, you, you laid out kind of different metrics for non-US China investment. So you talked about global trends, you talked, you know, you have data on EU trends. So I guess my question is twofold. One, and I know this is hard, how much of the, is it possible to quantify the downturn with respect to pandemic, number one, which will go away at some point. Bad, you know, firma, kind of bad um, political relations and capital control. The three major impediments on Chinese investment in the United States. So number one, can you allocate among them? And two, you showed briefly this chart of global M&A. Have we had a has the United States had a greater drop? And then for Adam, you know, the two-way venture. So we've seen this reduction in U.S. investment, venture capital investment in China. Well, overall, what has it been? And what have non-U.S. investors been doing? Is there some way we can uh, create a metric where we can understand um, how the EU, Japan, Korea, ASEAN are faring versus us? 
So, Kilo, you want to first take it and then Adam? Yeah, that that is that is a, a tricky question to to unbundle, but but uh, I can I can offer a few a few thoughts. So, I think for, first of all, um, if we look at global FDI flows. Um, um, the, the COVID-19 pandemic has certainly uh, triggered a significant fall in, in global activity, simply because there were all these physical restrictions in place, and you can't, you can't, if you can't travel, you can't do due diligence over Zoom in most cases. Well, some cases you can actually, but uh, uh, that that has really weighed on uh, on cross-border transactions. Um, we, it's hard to really put a put a put a number on it, but. Uh, sometime earlier this year, UNCTAD estimated we'll see a 30 to 40% drop in, in global FDI flows in, in 2020. I think we'll probably be, be on the lower end of that um, because uh, things have actually recovered quite a bit quicker than, than a lot of people had um, expected. But um, it's, it's certainly a reflection uh, of, of that um, bigger drop. At the same time, um, you know, domestic deal making, if you look at M&A, uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, has, has remained fairly robust, and, and especially if you look at venture capital markets, and I want to steal Adam's thunder, but um, 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 domestic uh, deal-making in the U.S. has remained fairly strong, partially because uh, the Fed has pumped so much money uh, in, into the market. Um, and um, so uh, if you look at, at some of these metrics, that has held up pretty well, but the, the cross-border aspect, cross-border transactions have come down uh, quite significantly. Now, Second observation is, you know, how much of that was was policy related, uh, and I guess the way to un the best way to unpack that really is to to look at uh, at China's global outbound um, FDI trajectory. And um, as I said, uh, uh, you know, no matter which data points you look at, is it if it's the, the official Chinese figures or our proxy data, uh, you do see that decline in Chinese outbound investment, uh, and that was deliberate. There was a there was a policy decision by Beijing, uh, both. On a high-level signal, but then also on the administrative level, that that you have these controls. Uh, we see uh, just more, more broadly, China taking a different approach to deploying global capital, uh, including a uh, lower uh, lower um, importance of BRI and some of these initiatives. So um, a lot of that is related to to high-level rethinking on the Chinese side. Um, and um, then on the recipient end, lo looking at the U.S. Um, uh, and other um, recipient nations, I would say that uh, certainly um, the uh, the regulatory uh, scrutiny in the U.S. has increased quite a bit, and um, the, the one the one new thing is that it's not just CFIUS anymore, right? The U.S. is now deploying an expanding toolbox to uh, uh, curb U.S. market presence by Chinese companies uh, if they meet certain uh, certain um, criteria, um, and the U.S. has certainly Within the OECD, taken taken a, a leading role, but it's certainly not alone in 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 taking these policies. Right, we see other nations, including Australia, uh, um, um, a lot of European governments, a lot of emerging markets, India, of course, uh, taking similar steps and a, a more cautious approach to accepting Chinese capital. So I'd say it's it's a global phenomenon, but the U.S. has certainly played a, a, a leading role in in moving these forward. And then the last layer to to unpeel is just politics and rhetoric, right? Um, uh, um, investors really look for predictability and certainty, and the the uh, the style of policymaking in the U.S. Uh, the, the 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 injection of risk and volatility by by, by the Trump administration that is really um, deterring uh, a lot of foreign investors, not just Chinese investors, um, um, but that is 
one element that we can't forget. And you don't have that to the same extent in other uh, jurisdiction, I would argue. Adam, anything in, in particular on, on VC that you want to add? Uh, yeah, I can address the second half of that question. Uh, one other thought I did have on uh, just the first question of broader, what, what, how can you like disaggregate these different drivers is that COVID is a 2020 phenomenon mostly in terms of its impacts on numbers. And you can see from our historical data that we shared earlier that the declines in Chinese investment in the US, for example, from a peak of more than $46 billion in, in uh, 2016 uh, to just a couple billion dollars uh, per quarter had already happened uh, before coronavirus came around. Um, and so certainly there is more pressure now due to the pandemic. Um, but I think that is indicative of like what proportion of that drop is, is due to policy and US-China relations compared to coronavirus. Um, moving just quickly to your question on venture capital. Uh, the US and Chinese venture capital ecosystems uh, are very, very different. Uh, and experiences of investors there have been very different in the last 18 months. I mentioned earlier in the report that I think, uh, uh, at least according to preliminary estimates, uh, in the first half of 2020, uh, the United States is going to set a new record in terms of uh, venture capital dollars raised, something like $77 billion uh, at last count. Of course, that number will probably rise as additional deals are identified and, and aggregated by uh, these data providers. We're, we're only uh, just, a, we're still a few months just out, out of the end of that, date, that time period. Um, so there's been a continual uptrend, and that's um, it's it's poignant that uh, that has been juxtaposed against a downtrend in Chinese VC investment in the U.S. Um, so you've got increasing opportunities in theory in terms of the number of fundraising rounds, number of companies interested in raising money in the United States, but even with that growing opportunity set, Chinese participation has fallen. Um, there, those two trends have been much more aligned for U.S. investment in China. Uh, China broadly has seen a major contraction in overall uh, fundraising activity since that same peak in, uh, in 2018. Uh, and it doesn't matter if you're US or if you're a Chinese VC investor or from anywhere else, um, there haven't been many uh, players that have been able to maintain just the same level of investment as they did two years ago, just due to the, the fewer opportunities. So falling US investment in China is actually much more aligned with the overall trend of just Chinese uh, venture financing broadly. Um, so those two are, are, are very different. Fascinating. Talk about divestitures. Obviously, TikTok is in the in the headlines this evening. Um, but talk about two things. Well, one is the um, there's the data <clears throat> shows a drop off in the number of Chinese divestitures in the last six months. Is that because we've in the United States? Is that because we've uh, that we've turned a corner, or is that because the stock is so depleted that there are no more divestitures to be um, requested? Mm, right. Well, I think what you what you really see is is an, is is, uh, is the end of the first the first big wave of, of, of the great unwinding, right? So so if you look at that chart historically, um, what that was really triggered by is uh, is, is Beijing disciplining uh, uh, companies like. Like Anbang or HNA that have engaged yeah. in, in speculative arbitrage, uh, and and that included big big U.S. trophy purchases, uh, and so so that's really related to to uh, to that um, Chinese policy, uh, and that I think saw its peak in in 2018, and uh, it's kind of petering out. Anbang was just resolved uh, officially uh, earlier this week or last week, uh, so some of that is just coming to an end, and then right as as we're coming out of that. Um, you you do have I would say a second mini wave of divestitures that are being being forced uh, um, by uh, a more more aggressive uh, stimulus enforcement uh, and um, especially uh, companies that um, 
have not gotten that safe harbor, who decided, you know, when they made their initial acquisition in the US, and that includes TikTok, which a lot of people don't know that um, TikTok was initially created by through, through an acquisition of a US company, music, Musical.ly. Um, so if, if there are these open flanks, if you're just not going after them, and uh, it, some of them have mitigation measures, some of them end up in, in divestitures. Um, and I guess, Look at looking ahead. I don't think we're at the end of it, um, and we're going to see a few more uh, uh, more low prof profile market exits. And I think the next sort of mini wave will be companies that simply don't see a future here in the U.S. Right? If you look at uh, Chinese telecom service providers, China Unicom, and some of these folks. Um, if if you look at uh, at policy signaling, I don't think uh, they're going to make long term bets on the U.S. market. So you'll see some of these folks uh, leaving and 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 and. Uh, getting out of the U.S. market, but in terms of, uh, in terms of the, uh, uh, yeah, in terms of the, the sheer volume and value of divestitures, I, I do think, yeah, we're, we're, we're over the peak. And, and are we seeing divestitures by U.S. companies in China? I can speak well, to that one a little bit. Um, short answer is yes. Um, and there are broadly two buckets um, that we've seen in the last few years. Um, a handful have just pulled out from China due to straight commercial reasons. Um, so a couple of examples include uh, Ball Corporation, uh, divested of its entire containers and packaging business in late 2018, just because the market was oversaturated there. Uh, Amazon closed down its e-commerce, uh, direct-to-consumer e-commerce business just in 2019, uh, due to really stringent competition with, um, their intense competition with JD, with Ali, with other e-commerce players. Uh, Granger, uh, Chicago-based um, industrial products maker, announced that it would divest its, its China distribution arm. So th there are U.S. companies that are making divestiture decisions in China that are just based on commercial realities. Um, and then there are also firms that are divesting from China due to uh, policy constraints in China. Um, and examples from just recent years include uh, Amazon, again, uh, being forced to divest of their Nascent Cloud business um, due to the new uh, stringent data security rules that were adopted in China in around 2017. Um, we're going back a little bit further, a, a more prominent example was H3C, the subsidiary of uh, Hewlett Packard Enterprise um, that did uh, um, uh, corporate uh, IT products. Um, so those things happen too. And the, the, the trajectory of both of those buckets of divestitures going forward are going to depend on the mix of commercial opportunities for U.S. firms in China, uh, whether or not commercial opportunities persist. Uh, if, if an economic slowdown makes um, expanding in China less attractive from a commercial perspective than US, US firms will respond. Um, and then, of course, the other bucket I mentioned is regulatory or policy related divestiture, and there's risk for that too. You know, for example, seeing um, China flex its muscles in terms of um, uh, expanding its export controls regime in the last few weeks could spell potential trouble for uh, foreign technology firms that have come to appreciate the open access to China's R&D ecosystem and have up till now had no concerns about whether or not IP they developed there, I'm sure, could be taken out of China. So um, policy could have an impact as well. The report talks about the kind of very unusual progress made by U.S. financial firms. It talks about, obviously, it's not, and, and it mentions it's not reflected in the data yet because a, a lot of these are approved, but we haven't seen the dollars go in. So it's more... Um, it's not in the data yet. What's going on here? If you open up the financial services sector and the banking sector to foreigners, which we've waited 18 or 19 years to see happening, doesn't that lead to a lot of economic reform 
throughout the system. So I know this is not exactly what the report is, but you have some interesting perspectives, or maybe Dan wants to jump in on this one too, um, because it's, you know, maybe it's because I sit a few hundred yards right here from the New York Stock Exchange, and I'm dealing with the Morgan Stanleys and the Goldman Sachses and the Vanguards and the Black Rocks of this world, who are putting in place a bunch of people uh, to deal with this rather significant increase in capital they're going to be putting in. What's going on? Tilo or Dan? Well, I, don't, to... I, I don't see Dan unmuting. Um, so I, I, I guess, you know, back, going back to your question, Steve, yes, it, it would certainly uh, have the potential to fuel significant reform uh, if, if it were full access and full, full liberalization, right? I mean, what we're talking about right now is the, the gradual opening uh, of a certain niche within a financial sector that is already fairly saturated. So I don't think we're talking about a revolution here um, and, and all, all within existing capital controls. So we're not talking about a, a revolutionary uh, uh, a liberalization here. We're talking about a welcome market opening that is going to provide a lot of opportunities to us companies. Um, and, um, uh, you know, ironically, um, it, it comes at a time where uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, political establishment isn't so sure that they actually want that financial integration uh, to happen. Um, so that, that's one other variable uh, for, uh, for the future. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think it's certainly a, a positive sign, but um, it, uh, it is uh, too early to uh, call it, I, in my view, a, a, a revolutionary step towards uh, uh, a, a big change of, of how the, the Chinese financial system uh, works. Maybe it's because I'm the eternal optimist. I also lived through the post-June uh, 4th, 1989 period, where we basically all withdrew from China and wrote it off. Then Deng took his trip to the South and began a, a period of opening and economic reform that American businesses were 24 months before they recognized what had gone on. So we were quite late to the game. So maybe it's my eternal optimism, which suggests that these financial services reforms are actually a big deal. And we should recognize them for a big deal. Tilo, you're absolutely right that the, the political establishment is now questioning whether that's good. I think if you're living, sitting where I am near the New York Stock Exchange, again, who, you know, consultants and lawyers and, and financial advisors, except this is, this is job opportunity and job creation for you. Dan, you have now unmuted yourself. I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to crowd out um, the good stuff going on in this conversation. Um, but let me just make one uh, additional observation on the financial, uh, sell side financial sector opening that we're seeing of late. Um, recall that at the beginning of the Trump administration, when he went to Beijing for a state visit even, uh, the Chinese side revealed a great um, ardor for wanting to do financial sector opening as a big give to the American side at that time even. So um, something about having foreign financials come to China, validate that China is an attractive place for global money to go by having the big names in global uh, finance um, uh, you know, uh, uh, on the ground in a bigger way, playing a bigger role, 
is something that has been built into Beijing's uh, model for a long time. And um, it has taken now, what, three years um, to get to yes. <laughs> and so it'll be interesting to see um, what impact this really has on the way that uh, finance and investment banking work in China. After all, um, these policies are real if they have real effects. And in many other niches of finance, foreign firms were permitted to invest decades ago, but their market share sort of hit a glass ceiling at one or two percent, and it's never moved up. And that's become a source of some, you know, um, grumbling, frankly. Um, so now we'll see. Um, we, we've, we've, as you say, made a good step uh, in terms of getting the, the, um, the permissions for, uh, for a number of global uh, investment banks uh, improved. Um, but now the ultimate proof will be in the pudding um, of whether they can build market share and change the way the finance works on yep. the ground. Yep. Interesting. The, the, you know, again, we, we've got this great data. The numbers vis-a-vis -vis the two largest economies in the world are de minimis. They're not even a blip. You know, yes, we're talking in billions of dollars, but in the context of these, you know, multi-trillion-dollar economies, it's 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 virtually non-existent. So my question is, how can this change, or is this basically now baked into the cake for the next five to ten years that the political reality is we're not going to do this? Or you know, I remember when we started this project. Uh, six years ago now, uh, we actually were talking about potentially having a bilateral investment treaty between the United States and China. Obviously, that's not on the table these days anymore, but that would have made these numbers somehow more consistent with the sizes of the economy. What do you guys think? Dan, you want to take this one? Uh, of course, I'm, uh, uh, I'm always happy to. Look, um, uh, if Beijing wanted to reopen the door to its uh, passive financial companies bringing $100 billion a year to the United States to invest, invest in REITs, commercial real estate, uh, these sorts of sectors, which actually accounted for the lion's share of the peak years we saw um, three years ago, there really would not be that much um, resistance in D.C., uh, the things that DC is highly activated to um, uh, to shine a bright light on are very different than most of what made up the swell of Chinese activity um, three years ago. It was Beijing that was concerned about private Chinese companies getting outside of Chinese space and putting their money into things like property uh, around the world and soccer teams and movie theaters and things like that. That was not principally an American concern. I will observe though, in, uh, with regard to a bilateral investment treaty, that near the very tip top of the European Union agenda right now is to complete a negotiation over a comprehensive agreement on investment, uh, uh, basically the same thing as a US bilateral investment treaty. So um, it is very much within the you know, frame of reference of the most advanced economies in the world, like Germany, to want to do that kind of a bilateral investment treaty provided that China is willing to go a big next step, that it has not been willing to go with Europe yet and was not willing to go with the United States either in terms of um, what needs to be in, to, in these kinds of agreements. So there's lots of potential. We could get surprised on the upside. Um, 
uh, but it's gonna it'll probably take a change in uh, in leadership, at least on the US side, um, to make that possible uh, in, in this bilateral relationship right now. Mm -hmm. well, Linda Robinson asked, do you think there will continue to be fewer investments by Chinese company in the US over the next decade if there continues to be anti-China sentiments expressed in policy and US-China relations? Well, I think you know we 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 partially already answered that question just now. I think uh, they're they're going back to your comments, Steve. We, we're talking about a combined uh, two economies of almost forty trillion dollars of GDP, right? And the current level of maybe fifteen to twenty billion a year in in, in two way FDI and VC is is ridiculously low. So from a structural secular uh, a growth uh, outlook, there's a, a lot of room to expand investment in both directions, but uh, the systemic uh, divergence and 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 and, uh, and uh, conflicts that we're seeing, um, th those are not likely going to be resolved soon. So uh, the the policy and, uh, and politics will stand in a way, uh, in addition to uh, purely the, the attitudes and the rhetoric that uh, the uh, that Belinda mentioned. David Zweig asks, "Hi, David. Uh, has decline in Chinese VC investment hurt?" Silicon Valley and new tech firms in the United States, whether owned by Americans or Chinese? Uh, it's an excellent question. Um, if you don't mind, Adam, I guess just, just throwing out, uh, you know, um, so, so I think in a, in, in a short term, looking at 2020, um, it, it's hard to see, uh, to see an immediate impact, um, right? Uh, Equities are back to an all-time high, as, as Adam mentioned. Venture capital fundraising uh, is at an all-time all record. We have another SPAC uh, listed every other day. Uh, we have U.S. companies doubling their IPO price. Uh, Snowflake yesterday is almost almost Chinese uh, uh, Chinese uh, uh, situations here. So, so in terms of total money in the market uh, and fundraising activity, um, in the short run, it, it doesn't really um, uh, ha have a huge impact here on, on a situation in Silicon Valley. Um, what certainly is, uh, is more of a concern is, is the medium to long-term outlook, right? Um, what do we lose from not having Chinese investors, Chinese firms here um, to, to build bridges to the Chinese market, uh, to um, include Silicon Valley and other innovation clusters as, uh, uh, in, their, in their global uh, innovation uh, uh, chain? That is a medium to long-term question. Um, that, that's gonna be hard to project, but uh, right now, uh, and that's one reason why uh, uh, there isn't a, a lot more pushback. Right now, uh, uh, the pain cannot be felt from an underground perspective here in Silicon Valley. Maybe, maybe with the exception of a few industries uh, where there was a lot of dumb Chinese money around, right? So uh, if you look at things like semiconductors, right? Uh, there was a China price for a couple of years, uh, and investors from China, state-owned, private, have paid a, a big premium for these stakes. Um, that's gone now, but that's a fairly marginal share of the market. I can add just some quantitative thoughts to cap off what Tilo said, and I agree with pretty much all of that. Um, uh, $800 million of Chinese VC investment in the US during the first half compared to $77 billion is not even a drop in the bucket. So arithmetically, the answer just has to be no, uh, at least in the short term, like Tilo said, there have been plenty of other sources of capital willing to step in and let uh, pre-existing Chinese investors sell out. 
um, or replace uh, the money that would otherwise be coming from China. Uh, so it certainly hasn't slowed down on average. Uh, you know, there could be a couple of examples here and there in niche industries or niche companies like Tila mentioned, but on average it has not. Um, and then just to add maybe one more comment too on, on the importance of those long-term linkages. Uh, what, what US-China cross-border venture capital investment helped to facilitate is an orientation towards each other's markets. Um, venture capital includes mentorship, right? So when a US firm goes to China uh, and invests in a Chinese startup, uh, it brings expertise, uh, not only for how uh, that firm might grow within China, but often for what sort of international strategies and opportunities that firm might exist in the future. And the same for Chinese coming to the US. Um, and so to the extent that those linkages are tied, I think uh, I agree with Tilo that there's a risk in the long term that US-China innovation and technology startup uh, ecosystems uh, grow apart. Um, they become a little bit more bifurcated. I'm not quite sure how far, uh, but that certainly has implications over the long run for how uh, global technology is, is structured. We had one little coda to this as well, Steve. Uh, you know, um, let's uh, uh, even pretend for the moment that there is some short-term pain to Silicon Valley from a, um, a uh, uh, you know, a, a uh, material U.S. pushback against what are perceived to be problematic Chinese practices. But we see taking place in China, including just uh, the past couple of days, this very clear push of the party and the leadership into taking more control over governance at private Chinese companies, including the kind of private um, startups that venture capitalists um, are, are interested in getting involved in in China. And um, I'm quite concerned about that. I see um, Abby Coughlin is on the line, she and her colleague, Wendy Luter, we've done work with on governance in China. Um, in the long term, if there's not willingness on the part of market democracy governments, foremost the United States, to really push back and take some risks for short-term opportunity in order to you know, um, protect this principle that there cannot be a sort of takeover of companies' reasons to exist to serve a prime, a principally political purpose, right? Then in the long term, there's not going to be private equity opportunities anyway, because there's not going to be private equity. It'll all be just be public equity, the way things are going, seen through a, a certain lens. Now, some people are going to take issue with whether the kind of signals we're seeing in Beijing right now are really that strong. Um, but I can tell you from my own perspective, I, I continue to be concerned almost every week, yes, by things happening in DC, but also very much um, by this intrusion of political motivations um, into the way that market companies, private companies are supposed to function uh, in, a, in a market economy and the way I was hoping they would be functioning in, in the People's Republic. You're, you're suggesting that the, the, when they were going, the going out policy was not for commercial reasons, was for basically political reasons that the Chinese investment outside of China during the, when we were peaking yeah. two, well, three know, years ago? So I think in the heyday of the going out period that you're referring to, um, most of that act activity, as we said a second ago, maybe 90% of it was not strategic in any sense that was concerning to Washington, which is why if Beijing were to go back to just letting Chinese investors do what they want to do, the lion's share of what would ensue would not actually be strategically problematic for the United States or Germany or Japan or anybody else, right? Um, but it was uh, in the face of 
the volume of outbound interest that Chinese firms, especially private firms, had that Beijing chose to lean back in to this space that was becoming the most exciting new channel of China global economic interaction and engagement, right? It was precisely the volume and enthusiasm of private players that caught the eye of political authorities and made them uncomfortable where, with where this was going, I would, I would observe. Yeah, so they put in place capital controls. Among other things, capital controls just in terms of approvals for outbound flow, but right. now, as I just mentioned, these other controls, which are not capital controls, but are political govern changes to governance expectations that define a greater role for the party in particular in shaping the choices that private firms make, whether those private firms are foreign invested or not. Why did the distressed asset purchases not happen? Was that because of uh, capital controls or they never, stuff didn't become available for sale? The, the report talks about that, you know, the beginning of this year, Congress was very nervous about Chinese coming in and buying distressed assets, but that never happened. Why? Um, well, I think, again, we, we, we got to go back and, and look at what, what has led to the decline in, in Chinese outbound investment in the first place. And it's been, uh, number one, capital controls, and those have remained in place. And number two, uh, a, a fairly significant decline uh, in, in, in liquidity that was flushing around in the Chinese system, right? Uh, and I think uh, the, the COVID-19 pandemic has uh, reinforced both. Um, balance of payments concerns have, have remained strong. So, so Beijing kept those capital controls in place. And a lot of companies that were in a position to make outbound investments had to struggle with, uh, with uh, consolidating their, uh, their domestic balance sheets instead of expanding overseas. Um, so it's, it's really more of a, a domestic story. And then certainly um, uh, the, the, the broader geopolitical environment has played a role as well, right, um, around the globe. Uh, not just the U.S. Uh, and, and Europe has a lot of European governments have tightened investment screening rules. Um, India has moved very rapidly and harshly against Chinese investment. So, so that certainly does play a role. Um, but it, it is really first and foremost uh, a, a, a domestic Chinese story um, uh, that um, that we see playing out here. The um... I've been so fascinated by this conversation. I failed to note we've we've now run over. <laughs> We're out of time. So can, can I ask one incredibly hard question to end with, which you can just say, why don't you answer it? I have no idea. Which is what's going to happen with the TikTok divestiture? How does that how does that play out? It's literally I, I expect to turn on the television after this is this is off um, after we're off this call. Um, it's such a difficult, it was this morning when I got up, I watched CCTV uh, news, you know, the Xinwen Liambo, the evening news, and it was the first story on the evening news about how unreasonable the United States was being. So where does it turn out? Um, has Oracle put in place enough protection? It's a big divestiture. Nobody wants the answer. Let's see. It's, it's incredibly hard. It's, it's a private negotiation between the parties and, and the Treasury Department at this point. And, and I think, uh, I, I guess if I had to be speculating, I, I would say, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to see a full-blown uh, sale to the U.S. party, but we'll find some way 
to structure a mitigation agreement that would involve uh, U.S. control of the data, um, because there there are precedents uh, where uh, where these kind of approaches have worked, and um, um, so I would expect that uh, we're we're going in the same direction, but certainly with the current administration and with the elections coming up, it's a little harder to predict, um, and uh, you could also see a, a more radical and different outcome. I think that is a remarkably articulate answer and really is, is right on and kind of consistent with the quality of this program. The, both the data and the program are absolutely terrific. Uh, Tilo has given, just want to one, one more time, Adam, put them up on the, put up on the screen how people can uh, download this or, or go to the website to read the data. It's, it's absolutely, for those interested in U.S.-China economic relations and investment flows, it's an absolutely must read. And it's shorter than the annual report we usually put out. So, so it's great. But uh, Tilo, Adam, Dan, thank you guys so much for doing this. It's a great partnership, one which we at the National Committee greatly value and it's great that we can shed light rather than heat on the U.S.-China relationship. But thank you and thank you all for joining us today. Thank you, Steve. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.